Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 23. 1 Samuel 23. Today we'll be going over the second half of this incredible chapter. We need to remember as we get going here what's been happening. God's anointed king of Israel, David, is being pursued by the acting king of Israel, Saul, who is desperately trying to hold on to his crown and is thoroughly consumed with trying to kill David. Chapter 23 of 1 Samuel, in this chapter, David is once again seeing how faithful the Lord is as he flees for his life. Since he's now the leader of what you could say is a ragtag group of 600 men who actually sought him out when David was hiding in the wilderness area, in a particular wilderness area. These men were described earlier in, in these chapters as being in distress, as being in debt, and being bitter in soul. It's one thing to be alone and hiding from Saul. It is quite another to be responsible for 600 other people and trying to hide from Saul. It's also quite remarkable that David answers the call to rescue the city of Kila from Philistine attacks. And this is in the middle of also being pursued by Saul. This is all evidence of David's growth in his faith as he is learning what it means to persevere in faith when the pressure just never lets up. And I know there's no one in here that has ever been in that situation or may not feel like you're even in it now. This is common human experience. And as we continue to see today, God provides exactly what his servant needs. When things get so tough, going on, And going on just looks like it's impossible, an impossible thing to do. So this is, as you know, very, very practical. But it's also very profound as we learn that maybe this spiritual walk most of the time is a lot more simple than we want to think it is as far as the main issues. Last week, God provided what David needed through two very tough and confusing situations that he was trying to navigate in. First was whether he and his men should go to rescue that city in Judah, Kila, from Philistine attacks. And the first thing we see David do there when he heard what was going on was inquire of the Lord. Then his men communicated their own fear of having to engage the Philistines in addition to having to stay away from Saul. So David very graciously inquired of the Lord again, mostly for their sake, so that they would be encouraged to keep going. And David and his men got rid of the Philistine threat to this city. The second situation was even stranger. Kyla's flaky change of heart when threatened by Saul for having anything to do with David. In other words, David was uh, 
had liberated this town. He was still in it. It was a fortified city. And Saul, of course, got wind of this, and he thought, great, he's trapped. This is when I can finally get him. And so he threatened the town. He didn't care about the people in this town, even though they were Israelis. Okay? And so they changed, after being rescued by David, they were ready to turn him over to Saul because of his threat. And that's what was going on here. So when David inquired, he asked two specific questions. Whether Saul would in fact come to Kilah, and whether the men of Kilah would in fact give David up to Saul. And the Lord indicated yes to both of those very pointed questions. So in this situation, David and his men got out of the city before Saul could get there with his army. There's a lot of irony in these situations I'm sure you're picking up on. I'll try to remind us of those things as we go on. God provided, in other words, his word to give David direction for these two very tough and confusing situations. That's the main lesson in our lives as believers. We have his word. The first time David was to go and rescue the city of Kilah, but the second time he was to get out of Kilah before Saul got there. Today we finish chapter 23, which shows us another important way that God provides for his servant. God sent his servant, Jonathan, to give David encouragement as a very treacherous situation then unfolded after this. If you were able, would you please stand as I read 1 Samuel 23, verses 15 through 29. 1 Samuel 23, verses 15 through 29. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horish, on the hill of Achilah, which is, in south, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go make yet more sure, know, and see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there, for it is told me that he is very cunning. See therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you, 
And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told. So he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Another great story, isn't it? Notice how David's circumstances are first described in verses 4 and 15 of this chapter. Verse 14, which we ended with last week, says, And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. And David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. Now at this point, it's most probable that David had already been hiding from Saul for a couple of years. Waiting, waiting, waiting. Waiting for what? God had anointed him to be the next king through his priest but it wasn't happening we're all reminded that God's timing is often not what we would like it to be but always for reasons that are beyond us as far as wisdom and his redemptive plan go this means what this means that the day to day pressure of such an existence became more and more enormous as it went on. And even though God did not give him into Saul's hand, which we read here, David's grip on God's promise to him must have wavered at times. He's human. The often repeated question throughout the Psalms, which if you read the Psalms, which I hope every person in here does often, is got to be so descriptive of this situation. Does this sound familiar? It's all over the Psalms. My soul is greatly troubled and in anguish. How long, O Lord? How long? Anybody in here ever cried that out? How long is this going to last? Of course, what is meant many times there is how long are we going to have to wait for deliverance from the Messiah? 
but it includes the circumstances that go along with that waiting as well. So every one of us can identify with what's going on in David. In fact, every song that we sang earlier is like David crying out to the Lord, and some of them were, actually. He lived with this constantly, this burden. And the question, when? When? Did God really mean what he said? Is this ever going to end? It already seems like forever. And we can all identify with that, can't we? At just this time... Jonathan rose, we read, and he went to David at Horish. Now, this wasn't just, oh, I think I'll go down and visit. Since Jonathan was still with his father, serving in his army, remember, Jonathan was the greatest warrior in Israel besides David. He was very much aware of the on and on and on and on nature of, of what his friend David must be going through. And while, this is ironic again, why Saul couldn't seem to find David, Jonathan had no such trouble. Amazing. What does verse 16, the last part of verse 16, say that Jonathan did for David? We read there, And Jonathan strengthened David's hand in God. What does that mean? This is one of those great Hebrew statements that comes out in the Hebrew because it's just such an earthy language with the descriptions and the pictures that we get from it. Um, It simply means that Jonathan put David's hand, as it were, in God's hand. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That's how he strengthened him in the Lord. More paraphrased versions of the Bible go ahead and just say he strengthened him in the Lord. But the Hebrew actually says what we read here. Jonathan put David's hand, as it were, in God's hand. So he encouraged David in his faith, or he helped him find strength in God. But the real question goes beyond that, doesn't it? How? How did he do that? Well, we have an answer here. It's in verse 17. It's by what he said. And so we immediately look, oh, what's the magic? What's the perfect pill? What's the steps that we have to follow? We're all thinking that. But look what we read. Jonathan says, do not fear. For the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. There's a lot packed into those sentences, isn't there? Any new information here? Anything Jonathan tells him that David didn't already know? Not really. And all Jonathan does is remind David of God's promise. In other words, he reaffirms God's promise to David. And there are so many practical implications to Jonathan doing this. So let's look at a few of them. 
first, Jonathan took the initiative to go to David. And we've got to understand that because Jonathan was at Saul's side, with Saul's army, that he was exposing himself to the same danger that David was experiencing. Jonathan went to the person that his father was trying to kill. Saul knew that they had an agreement with each other. In fact, we know that he knew that they'd made a covenant with one another. And do you remember that Saul actually threw the spear that seemed to always be in his hand, not only at David, but also at his son? And yet somehow they coexisted, and Jonathan managed to serve his father, the king, until God took him out, which is going to happen. But Jonathan will lose his life also. So he won't be at David's side, like he tells him here. But he is as far as with him. Jonathan was putting himself in harm's way at possible great cost to himself. This is what great friends do with one another. Second thing we see here is that Jonathan was sensitive to the needs of his friend, which means that he had thought through what David must have been experiencing. Instead of worrying about his own perilous and very difficult situation, and just think about that. Talk about political nightmare. Jonathan was in the middle of it. Which, of course, this all involved his broken relationship with his father and all the other difficulties created because of his friendship with David, such as him voluntarily giving up his own career aspirations, which we saw him do earlier, when he stripped himself of his outer robe and his weapons and he gave them to David as a sign of what? To his men who were standing there. Jonathan, the next king, the prince, gave David those weapons and his outer robe, signifying what? Hey, man, this guy is a real king. Don't you worry about following him when the time comes. I'm already with him. An incredible act of humility and wisdom and submission to his God. Jonathan was all in. But he still, he had to deal with all the people who still hoped to attach themselves to him for their own gain as he would succeed his father to the throne. And we need to realize that. Nothing's changed in history. People that are seeking those kind of worldly aspirations have a very, very steady way of attaching themselves to those people by any means possible. Why? So that they can gain from what the person that is greater than them gains. We have a saying for it, riding on somebody else's coattails. And these people were still all over the place, and Jonathan had to deal with them. But in a remarkably steadfast demonstration of his own faith and trust in the Lord, Jonathan had obviously committed his own needs to the Lord. How could he still serve his father when his father had tried to kill him and was so mad at him? for giving up any aspiration to fight for his place, which he thought should be his. How could he do that without trusting God? This is quite, quite a man here. 
And he turned his thinking, instead of, oh, woe is me, I'm in this situation, I can't be the prince, my father is crazy, the situation is impossible, he turned all that into what? What is David going through? He's the one that's going to be the king, and yet he's living like an animal in these caves and the harsh wilderness areas with 600 men to take care of. So he turned his heart to thinking about David and what he must be going through. Now this is, this is nothing new. It should be nothing new for any of us who claim the name of Christ. But it's usually a lifelong lesson for every single one of us. Why? Well, Paul wrote about this in Philippians 2. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. That is the mark of a true believer. It's what God is doing in each of us. And it's usually not instant, is it? Of course, our greatest motivation and example comes from Christ himself, whose whole earthly ministry, his whole mission, embodied this attitude of service and sacrifice. We would not be here if he did not practice what he knew was true. Well, as we consider David's predicament, what can easily be missed is how lone he must have been. As he devoted himself to leading and meeting the needs of 600 men in the wilderness, who was there to uphold him? And this is often true of great leaders. It's often true of anybody in ministry. It's also true of anybody who tends to stand up for what they know and believe. Sometimes we forget, well, who's, who's caring about them? Who's going to go and encourage them? Because we think they're just a rock. They'll make it. Well, Jonathan proved himself to be the friend that we all want when he recognized all these things going on in his friend David. Obviously, God is proving to David through these trials that God alone, the Lord himself, is sufficient. And David's learning those lessons. And God knows exactly when to provide exactly what we really need. We just have issues with God about what we think we need and what he knows we really need, which usually is first and foremost him. And how do we get to know him? By learning to trust him in situations that it's hard to trust in. I mean, anybody can say they're doing great when everything's going great. But when it gets rough, who do we turn to? Do we wallow in self-pity and depression forever and ever and ever, or do we turn to him and cry out to him? We learn to go to him first, and that's what David was in this process of learning. We just heard about John 
Southwest, what is it, Con the Kentucky State Police have a, a more intense training program than West Point? At least the first day. We don't know how that's going to end. <laughs> and that, that is saying something. Why? For a great responsibility. To have your head on straight, not just your body in shape. To deal with, we know, what anybody in law enforcement must learn to deal with these days. Misunderstood at every turn, misinterpreted the temptation to lose your temper, to say the wrong thing, to act when you shouldn't act, or to not act when you should act. Those are tremendous pressures. Well, there's some similarities here. It's important to understand that we don't instantly become mature by taking a class or going to a Bible study as believers. God takes us through some rough stuff in life. And we've got to be okay with that because he's the one that knows what we need. He's the one that knows how to bring us into more likeness of our Savior and Lord. And the whole purpose, our main problem is anyway, we think that this is it. We, we want to get it now. Live life now. And there is a lot about now. But he is preparing his people for eternity for a future and eternity with him that will make this life pale in comparison time-wise in every other way so if we're not along if we don't align ourselves with this if we think that it's well I just want to feel good every time I open the book I want to hear great things about myself every time I'm in a meeting or I read God's word I want the easy road all the time then your training program is going to be really interesting in life itself. Think of Christ's disciples. He walked with them for three years. How did he get them ready for when he left? See, all of this plays in together and is, are pictures of what is really the most important thing in our lives is knowing God through Christ his Son. Our text makes it crystal clear that God was not willing to give David up to Saul. David must learn, and we must learn, to look to God and go to him first. And here we see Jonathan, Jonathan understanding the great gift that companionship can be to a struggling friend, and he sees this as part of God's program of bringing him along. His friend especially, but also you can imagine Jonathan. It's also obvious that he wouldn't have gone and that David needed this right now. He was struggling to remain constantly confident in God's promise to him, like any of us would. Because we know how that works, don't we? Time passes. Time passes. Time passes and gradually, gradually our faith and confidence is whittled down. It's whittled down. Jonathan went in person thirdly to David in David's place of struggle. 
Now, we can't always go in person. But we need to do what we need to do to help, to be an encouragement. In this extreme case, it was exactly what David needed. He needed to hear the word of God on Jonathan's lips. Somebody that understood him, that was committed to him, that he knew he could take anything from because they had committed their very lives to one another before God himself. And we cannot underestimate how important that is. Thank goodness there weren't cell phones and mail back in those days because this makes it crystal clear how this works. But we have other avenues, but don't, don't, don't ever just use those as excuses not to do what God knows you should do. You need to go in person, and it costs you greatly, and you know that's what God needs or wants you to do, do it. Because you see, Jonathan did more than just show up. Do you see that here? What he did for David is the most important thing that any of us can ever do to help a brother or sister in Christ in their time of great need. Jonathan reaffirmed God's promise to David. All of us wonder, don't we, at times, how to encourage somebody that we care about or we know is in trouble? And we get overwhelmed so easily. Why? Because we try to figure out what words we'll use to encourage. And if we're not good at that or somebody hadn't told us we're good at that, we just immediately wilt. Or what we'll do to help. Or what the friend will be able to do for themselves. And so before we even get started, we've already stopped. Usually we also learn very quickly one of the main lessons in this whole thing. What's that? Our own insufficiency and our own strength. We go, even if we go, and we find out, oh man, I didn't even say what I knew I should say, or... I said too much, or I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, and you fill in the blanks. Then we cry out to God, finally. God, I'm yours, whatever you want me to do, whatever you want me to say. So the greatest thing that we can do is take that shaking hand and place it on the promises of God. This is what Jonathan did. William Blakey, Blakey writes this, to remind our Christian friends in their day of trouble of their relation to God. And this is not this kind of reminder. If you just do this, it's not Job's friends. This is a sensitive, it costs you to go see him. It, you care about him enough that you get it out finally. To remind our Christian friends of their, in their day of trouble of their relationship to God. To encourage them to think of his interest in them. In other words, who they are in Christ. 
and his promises to them, which is not pray this prayer and God will make it all right. It's not pray this prayer and you'll get exactly what you want. That is not usually how God works. And to drop in their ear some of his assurances is surely the best of all ways to encourage the downcast. And in case you haven't recognized it, the reason why most of us end up in the Psalms is because we find out that's probably where we should have gone first. Because we identify with every single cry, emotion, praise right there. And we sang them this morning. A paraphrase, then, of, of what Jonathan said to David might sound something like this. Look, David, don't fail to put your trust in God. Remember the Lord's promise that you will be king. He made this specific promise to you. But in case you are doubting, let me share something with you. Even my father Saul knows that this is how it will all end up. See, that's powerful, isn't it? So don't fear him, David. Trust the Lord. Now, why could Jonathan tell David not to fear? That's a, a great question because t too many times we have some little catchphrase answer for it. But let's look at this and think about it. Why could Jonathan tell David not to fear? Well, there was, first of all, some very good reasons why David could be very afraid in this situation, is there not? Psalm 54, 3, which is the psalm David wrote, as we read, we're going to read it later, again, um, when he found out the Ziphites had wanted to turn him in. says this, Strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. So this is David talking to God about the very situation that we're in here. And ha is he thinking correctly as he prays to God? Strangers have risen against me. He didn't know these people. They were Judites, but he didn't know them. Ruthless men seek my life. Wonder who that means. Saul. They do not set God before themselves. That's the clincher. Why? Why do you expect people who do not know God to treat you like they're Christians? And then we go, well, I know a lot of Christians that are worse. See, that should never even be. But why do we expect people who do not know God and their whole life is revolving around what they want, when they want it, how they want it, why would we expect those people to not be ruthless and evil and selfish, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Why does that surprise us? It shouldn't. It doesn't mean we get caustic and we turn really mean to them. It means that 
it breaks us because we see their need more and more and more. How else could David have gone in and, and played the liar and sung to this king who was trying to, who started throwing spears at him off and on during this process and still wanting to serve him? In next chapter, I don't know if you've looked, chapter 24, David spares Saul's life in a cave. Remember that story? Why didn't David just take him out? We'll find out next week. We already know the answer, but how can you live with a threat like that and still not fear? This is the answer. Saul had the priest at Nob slaughtered even when his servants refused to do it. All the priests, the whole town. He had a reason to be afraid. How? By employing ruthless, evil men who enjoyed it. So it wasn't just Saul. It was, remember that Edomite? The guy who heard everything. The guy who finally said, oh, I'll do it for you. And he went and slaughtered the whole town. Probably everybody in here knows what it's like to be threatened by bullies or a malicious. I mean, we're talking a malicious, not just a territorial boss, but a malicious territorial boss. And if you haven't in your life, wow, so far so good. Or some corrupt and tyrannical government power. Think about the world that we live in. All we see is abuse of power, selfish means of gaining anything people want, people manipulating to get what they want, maneuvering to outdo this or that. This, this is the world in sin. And David saw all this up front and center as he was hiding from a king who knows he's not supposed to be the king and will be replaced by David, but just like the evil one, Satan, who tried to get rid of all the ancestors of Jesus before he was born, thinking that he could stop the process. When somebody's intent on evil, it just gets worse. There's no rhyme or reason for it. It isn't logical. It doesn't make sense. They're just mean. They're just evil people. And that's what happens. So who was your bully in school? Work on the job. Everybody's got some. The only real antidote to fear is to hold before your eyes God's character and his promises because greater is God than he made everything. So why are we afraid of anybody or anything? Because we value this more than what he has for us. But to hold him, that's the only way to conquer fear. And if we're used to getting out of it any way we can, then that's going to be our modus operandi until the time comes when that can't happen. And we have to turn to him. And instead of tearing ourselves apart going, oh, I can't believe God just let all this happen to me. We should be going, well, after the fact, we'll get there usually if he's behind it. We'll go, thanks. I mean, I wouldn't have picked that ever for myself, but look what you did in my life as I came to know you because of it. 
And that's the cry of somebody who's grown up in the Lord, right there. And it's not a cry. It's a, it's a cry of joy, actually, and thankfulness. Keeping before our eyes God's character and promises, which we tend to quickly forget when circumstances overwhelm us, don't we? All of us, we quickly forget. But what is true about God and his promises can always put fear in its place. So how would you describe what David really needed? What did he really need? And you know what the next question is. Make this personal. When you struggle with faith, what is it that you really need help in doing? A way out? An escape? A different job? A new family? A blah, blah, blah? Just edit anything you want. What do you really need? Isn't it a matter of needing to persevere in your faith? Oh, we hate that word. We don't wake up going, oh, God, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to how I'll have to learn how to persevere today. He doesn't throw at us more than he knows we can trust him for. But sometimes it is, and it seems like it's overwhelming. But this is what we are called to do. In fact, Paul, especially in the New Testament, says things like salvation means that you persevere to the end. It's a sign that you really belong to the Lord because he's the one that's working it in you. So don't we all need not only to believe in the Lord for salvation, but also to keep believing and acting on that belief? Yes. The reason why there's so much shallow Christianity out there in our day is because people think and proclaim that they're saved, but they don't want anything else beyond it. They just want an insurance policy. And God has a whole different redemptive plan for us. And if you know somebody that when you meet them, and you get to know them better and better, they just seem to ooze the grace and the peace of God himself. You latch on and get to know why. Usually it's because they've been through things where they learned how faithful God is, and they've fallen in love with him, and you can tell it. And that's what we are called to do with one another, help each other on that walk and that purpose. If you've ever heard or know who Thomas Watson was, he's a great Puritan, he wrote, it is not the beginning of the Christian life that gets glory, but the end. The excellence of a building is not in having the first stone laid, but when it's finished. The glory and excellence of a Christian is when he has finished the work of faith. Isn't that A valuable old saying goes like this. Encouragement from God for the people of God comes from the word of God. And as we've seen in this chapter, God has provided David his word 
first to give direction in what to do about the city of Kyla, first whether to go rescue them from the Philistines, and then whether to leave to avoid Saul's trap. Okay, that was clear indication of God's word, probably through the Urim and the Thummim, which was kind of like a lot that God provided Old Testament the high priest in order to say answer yes or no question. But God also has used his servant Jonathan to encourage a struggling David. But the encouragement David really needed came from Jonathan reminding David of God's word of promise. Now, let, let's be real. If you were David, I know that's kind of dreaming, <clears throat> but anyway, and you were suffering in that way and Jonathan showed up, wouldn't that be great? But what if he left and he hadn't encouraged you in God's word of his promise? When he left, would you be more despairing than when you before he came? I would bet yes, after a little bit, you would fall lower than you were before. Because you saw your friend, it was great to see him, but it was like, uh, 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 we, we didn't cover what we needed to cover. But Jonathan, you see, came with God's word. His encouragement was God's word. What God has done here in providing divine encouragement through his servant Jonathan is especially timely when we see what the Ziphites are up to in this chapter. These people were treacherous in their intentions, which is really different, as I mentioned before, from the people of Kyla, who did what they did in part because they were threatened. Their own city had been threatened by Saul. So, I mean, that still didn't excuse, but, you know, you can see that a little better. But the Ziphites were just opportunistic, cold, greedy. And even though they, too, were the tribe of Judas, they sought out Saul in order to turn David over to him because they wanted some favor gained from him. Knowing the general area that he was hiding in, they thought it would work, and actually it, Saul sealed the deal. But David found out about their treachery, and he was on the run. And then we read this nail-biter account. What was David to do in this situation? So consider again how the Lord had just encouraged him through Jonathan and what Jonathan's encouragement exactly was. This is what this has all been building to, because it pertains to us as well, very specific ways. Jonathan provided the word. So what was David supposed to do? If, if you're having trouble answering that, you still the next couple of minutes are really important to get it for this particular sermon. David was supposed to persevere in his faith. Sounds too simple? What were the early Christians called to do when they were persecuted by Rome? They endured centuries of violent threats, loss of property, persecution, execution as they refused to worship Caesar, and as they advanced the gospel throughout the empire, which they did. They persevered. What were the Christians to do in communist Russia, Eastern Europe, and China when persecuted? I don't know if you realize this, but vast amounts of underground Christians were persecuted by being thrown in prison and pretty much forgotten in all those areas. 
So they were supposed to endure the tyranny and violence as they devoted their years of being unjustly imprisoned to what? Prayer. And that's the stories that came out from the communist downfall, is that Christians who had been imprisoned forever were found, and they have been praying forever for God's deliverance and for him to work. And guess where more people are becoming Christians in our world today than almost anywhere else? Those places. That should bring us to tears. They understood what was really important. Because God has unleashed his gospel power upon so many of those lands. What about you and me then? We have got to answer this question. What about you and I, those of you in here who claim the name of Christ and who refuse, absolutely refuse, to be absorbed into the amoral, secular hedonism that rules our day? That's the only way to say it. We live in an evil world, including our own society. What are we supposed to do? We must continue the work of the church. Which is what? Well, next Sunday night it will be eating ice cream. We do have fellowship. We do have joy and fun. Times to share and encourage one another. But it also means getting down to the nitty gritty and caring about people who have never heard the word and who don't have the means to even know anybody that does. That's the work of the church with the proclamation of the gospel, salvation in Christ's blood. We must persevere in the faith. That's what we're being called to do in our immediate future. And when it looked like there was no way out for David from Saul's pursuit in the wilderness of Maon, David continued to try to get away from Saul. He was persevering. That's what he, I mean, what else could he do? Then in God's providential deliverance, we should all, this is what should give us a kick, and we should get a laugh out of this because it helps us know God better. Saul was abruptly called away to counter some Philistine raids. Saul and his men were closing in on David. Can you see, this is a great, this would be a great movie. To capture them, they were right there, and a messenger came. Saul, hurry and come, the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. And if you've ever been to Israel and been to that place, you understand that uh, it is unbelievably rough with a few little oases tucked away hidden in places. So how do we know where David was spiritually during this crisis with the treacherous Ziphites? Well, turn with me to Psalm 54. And as you turn, part of the things that we should get a kick out of and should help you believe in how great your God is, is this. God used the Philistines to save David again. He can use anybody, any nation, any people 
to accomplish his redemptive purpose. Even though they intended it for evil, he used it in his overwhelming sovereign providence to get David out of trouble. Again. You should be smiling. This, this is a great God we serve. It's why we should always have hope. He does things that we never expect to accomplish his purposes. Psalm 54. Notice the superinscription, the superscription at the top. It says, A mascal of David when the Ziphites went and told Saul, Is not David hiding among us? So this is what he's praying. This is David's prayer during this time. And we're asking the question, where was David spiritually? Oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. Oh God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. Is anything happening to show him that right now? No, he, this is what's true about God. He's saying this in the middle of being chased around and tried to be killed. He will return the evil of my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I'll give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it's good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my, eyes, my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. This is not just a temporal look. This is a long-term future look. He knows that God's got it. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are, so, we are so burdened by things we shouldn't be burdened about. And we know that you are great. We know this in our head. We read it. We study it. We proclaim it. And yet when you bring things into our lives that are painful or, and they cause us great grief and concern and we are overwhelmed, we so easily do not turn to you first and we confess that as sin. We pray that our first look, our first shout, our first cry would always be to you. We are safe in you. We love you. We know you have proven your love to us because you sent your son, your only son, to die for us. Develop our relationship with you in such a way that we will grow in our faith in turning to you and trusting you even when it hurts so bad in this life, whatever may be going on. You are good. And we will proclaim that even in the midst of not knowing what's going on. Oh, Lord, we lift this prayer to you, trusting in you for our future, our country's future, our loved one's futures, what you have for us now. We pray that we can take a deep breath and on this Sabbath day learn what that rest and peace really is what it feels like to trust in the midst of hard stuff God keep us there thank you for sending your word to us and thank you for the people of God who sometimes care and deliver it in ways that are so special to each of us we ask this in Christ's name Amen. would you stand for our benediction
How about verse 4 of Psalm 54? Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. Amen. You're dismissed.